0: Listening to Mastering
1: Retention, presented by Userwise. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, your host and co-founder of Userwise, and today I'm really delighted to be with uh, Jason, the, the founder of UX is Fine, uh, talking about all things games and game design but especially we're going to be talking a lot about ux so jason welcome Uh, i always like to start by you know just asking my guests you know how did you get into gaming how did you you know get to where you are today
0: yeah it's interesting because i definitely uh pursued the non-traditional gaming path I, um, I was actually in graduate school and, and I was, as it turns out, I turned 30 as I entered the games industry, but I was in graduate school uh, in a social psychology and psychology and law program where we did a lot of research on how judges and juries made decisions in cases involving complex scientific information, uh, which is like, how is that relevant to the games industry or what have you? But uh, really it was on the, it, it was studying how um, lay people understood complicated economic models or DNA evidence in the mid 90s turned out to be a real big thing with the whole OJ Simpson trial and all that and everyone became an expert. Uh, but the question was, how did you know these, these jurors who are on a jury, none of whom are necessarily trained scientists or mathematicians, how do they process all the information and come up with a verdict? Um, I burned out of that, like I was doing really well publishing papers and all that sort of stuff, but totally burned out, like major depression kind of thing needed a mm-hmm. change. And I got into, I I only knew how to do one thing, which was research um, and quantitative research basically at the time. And so I went to a company called IRI, Information Resources Incorporated, and they purchased scanner data from grocery stores and convenience stores. Uh, Because as it turned out, like, I never knew this at the time, this would have been like the late nineties, like Coca-Cola didn't know when it launched a national promotion, like what kind of lift they got on sales. They'd have to purchase scanner data, associate that data with when the promotion, national promotions went live and then see if there was a lift. And so I worked a lot on data cleaning um, and data analysis of like these consumer packaged goods sales. And I loved it. It was great, but it was a little slow for my taste. I was with a lot of recent undergrads um, and I was probably pretty overqualified for the job. But what I realized was there was this generational gap. Where I was the I was the only person there who'd ever used a text interface to use to do programming. Everyone behind <laughs> me was Windows or Mac, right? They were only used to the Mac, the the Windows, the, the mouse <laughs> click, you know, move the mouse around and click on things. Yeah. And so like a lot of these kids would be coming out, and I call them kids, they're you know fresh out of undergrad. They would come in and they'd be like, I don't know how to submit a batch job. I don't know how to write like a SAS line of code. I don't know how to write job control language. And they'd start to flip out and And I'd be like, well, I know how to do this stuff. And so what I did was I I downloaded um, ASCII art from like Calvin and Hobbes. So like, Mm -hmm. it was a big thing back in the mid late nineties, ASCII art, ASCII art. Uh, And so I'd have Calvin and Hobbes, like I figured they'd be pretty friendly and approachable. They would ask you for like, you know, what date do you want the report? What database do you need? You know, they'd ask you to enter that. And then (laughs) I used like an algorithm or, you know, I did some scripting that would then generate the job you needed. Because Calvin and Hobbes like did it you know, ask you. you what you needed. Yeah. Uh, when I got tired of that, uh, and I realized like that user interface design was a thing because I hadn't even known it at the time. Um, a statistical software company that I'd always liked, and I taught it to to, to um, graduate students uh, called SPSS. I was looking. I noticed they were looking for a senior UI designer uh, for a long time, and I was only a junior person. Like I don't only just discovered this field, so I emailed them and I said, "Hey." Uh, I'm a junior, but like if you can't, I see you can't find a senior. So, like if you're willing to entertain a junior, here I am. Uh, They hired me on, and this will, I promise I'll, you know, I could go on for hours, but the quick, the long (laughs) and short of it is they then, within a year, sent me to a HCI human computer interaction conference in Seattle. That was in 2000. Uh, That was when it was close to when Dungeon Siege was going to launch. I went to a Microsoft booth at the conference thinking that there would be free beer, and there was. But there was also a group of people just like me who had burned out of grad school in social and cognitive psychology who were demoing Dungeon Siege. And they're like talking to me and they're like, you sound just like us and we sound just like you. We're all in grad school, we're all research-based, we all study human psychology and now they're working in the games industry. I'm like, "Mm -hmm. well, how do I apply? And they're like, apply. And and that was a big year for staffing at Microsoft Game Studios, the user research Mm -hmm. department in games. And so you know, six months later, I was moving to Seattle and uh, I joined the Microsoft Games User Research team there and started working on, you know, how do people play games and what do they enjoy, hate, and how do
1: you make them more approachable and fun. That's great. And and where, you know, have you been working since Microsoft? Yeah, so Microsoft was a great intro to me.
0: I got to work on um, Crimson Skies for Xbox, which was a super fun game to work on and a very talented team. Uh, and um, also Rise of Nations with the folks at Big Huge Games. Um, Mm -hmm. And what they really taught me was like, as much as I liked research, what I really liked doing was making games with teams. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like making their games better and I like working closely with developers. And it turned out I had like a lot of like people skills, like thinking about it from a UX and a UX research perspective, we're putting our nose in the cracks of the game uh, (laughs) and we're like sniffing out the stuff that stinks, right? Yep. And and we're having to tell people who've been like already working super hard, they're established craftspeople. you know, here's some new, like 30 year old guy who's never been in the industry. And I'm having to basically poop all over everything that they've done. Um, and somehow or other, they were, I was able to build trust and respect. Uh, and together, we came up with a process that really like demonstrably improved the way their games played. Um, And I'm not going to take all the credit for it because that doesn't make sense. It was really in partnership. I provided the expertise in user research they provided the expertise in game development and absorbing feedback and making the games better based on that feedback. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so what I realized is that I needed to do a career shift. I needed to become a game producer. I wanted to learn how to make games, not just the user research component. So Big Huge Games hired me on as a producer um, and I helped them ship a few games as producer, Rise of Nations expansion packs, Rise of Legends, I helped them pitch uh, their RPG that came out as Reckoning several years later. Um, and I also, um, as I was burning out there, burning out you might think is a, <laughs> is a recurring theme here. Um, as I was burning out of games there, just from being producer on too many titles with too many big teams, I helped with, um, I did the UX and a lot of the learnings of play and play core design of Catan for Xbox uh, Live Arcade. And that's what reminded me that I liked building games, not software. And as a producer, I always felt like I was just building software. But as a mm. UXer, I felt like I was building games. Yeah. Um, and so I left after that and joined Amazon um, because they were really interested in, in games, people coming to help them think about their features, their live features. How do we get people more engaged? How do we make the site out daily habit? Uh, and this was just as social games started, like Facebook started to kind of, you know, become a bigger thing in terms of games. Yep. And Zynga started to get on the scene and all that sort of stuff. So I was there for a year and a bit, and then I at Amazon, and then I um, realized I needed to be back in games. So I did consulting. At that point, um, uh, a lot of the big studios hadn't quite yet caught up to Microsoft in terms of their usability and play testing abilities, but they did have big franchises and they wanted to do this. And so, for someone like me who'd already been super experienced in this, uh, it was easy for me to land gigs, diving in with teams and doing you know mm-hmm. flying around the country and doing usability gigs with these teams, helping them helping them do that. Um, I ended up working with two big clients, 38 studios slash big, huge games, um, and, uh, Zynga Baltimore. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, at the end, I just decided to go with, uh, Zynga Baltimore. Like I did consulting for a couple of years, but it felt like I was starting to have a family and stuff like that. And Zynga I was paying Zynga money back then. So I was <laughs> like, ah, go to Zynga for a couple of yeah. years and learn about social gaming and stuff. And then that studio imploded and I joined Disney mobile games that studio imploded. So I got some real, like, exp- like real game experience, game job experience then. Uh, and then I loved Austin, Texas where the Disney mobile job was. And I just started consulting again and I've been doing consulting for seven years, uh, started out as a solo, you know, word of mouth only people who are having trouble with their games. They're not fun. They're confusing. They're in soft launch. And the metrics aren't doing so well. And people would be complaining to their other folks that they knew in the industry. And they'd say, talk to Jason. Cause he can like, he can help you with these things um, because he's just someone who can like, he can help you when you're standing in the middle of a fire and figure out like, what are the three or four things that maybe we should, you know, we can change that will move the needle. Um, because at that point, there's usually like, there's a million things you could do. You've got a month left of runway or two months. You know, so <laughs> how do you pick the right things to do that yep. will move the needle? And so that was good, but it was hard for me to scale because it relied on me. Um, so you can't scale yourself. And so I partnered up with some folks who I enjoyed working with it. Neil Edwards at Backflip Studios, and then Dave Inscore, who i would worked with at various studios, Zynga, Big Huge Games, um, Sparky Pants. And uh, I said, as a threesome, we would be way more powerful because we could actually go in and do proper UXing and design and direction right at the beginning of the project. And Dave Inscore is an art director of 25 plus years, so we could actually make things look beautiful and things like that. And so about three years ago is when we started UX is Fine, and uh, we've been growing ever since and being we're, we're super busy. <laughs>
1: which is good. (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I I appreciate you sharing that story. So I've got a few questions for you just on on things that went in. Okay. So the first one, you said back in the day, you were really good at quantitative research. So I'm going to ask you what is quantitative research and what is qualitative research? And I'm going to caveat that with I feel like I hear different things from different industries because when you hear from like the market research industry, quantitative is a survey of people and qualitative is like an in-person focus group or like a telephone interview. Um, but I feel like, you know, if I'm talking to someone over here in gaming, I think about quantitative as like the player behavioral data stuff that I've done. And a survey that I give to my players is the qualitative side of things. So. What is qualitative research? Like, how should I actually think about it, um, you know, in yeah. terms of being able to evaluate, value? There's, there's a
0: few vectors to think about it, like from a purely scientific and research methodology standpoint. Um, part of it is, are you doing like sampling or population? So for instance, at Zynga, like a lot of the quantitative research was, not uh, much of it was done on the population. So in other words, we knew what every player was doing every day. We measured each daily user on certain behaviors. And so, population data, where you've got lots of it, it's all measured in terms of like numbers that are uh, at least uh, interval and most likely ratio level data. Uh, that's definitely quantitative data, right? Uh, but you can also say like there's certain things that would just be too expensive to to store data for every single person, and so maybe you, you know you take a 10th of the data and you collect more variables, more rows on those folks. And so you'd be sampling from the population, again, still clearly quantitative. Mm. So when you come to a survey type of thing, uh, and, and some people get bogged down with the numbers, like it's like, you know, if you if you have less than 100, then it's qualitative. If you have less than 10, it's qualitative. That actually <laughs> isn't really relevant there or not. You, could, you can generate numbers from one person, right? Like you can have them fill out ratio scale or something like that. Um, so when you come to survey type of stuff, like what's the difference between survey and a focus group? If you look at that as a continuum, and it's probably not just one dimensional, but and maybe I'm getting too esoteric here. Please feel <laughs> no, free to interrupt if no, I'm getting is, bored. This
1: is fantastic. I, I but, understand it.
0: <laughs> yeah, but for so for, so for, so for your for for quantitative research that is properly done um, in terms of a survey, you've got a, it It's really about the the methodology you employ to make sure that you can trust the numbers that you generate. So if you're trying to measure a population of interest, have you sampled in a way that makes sure that you've got people of the population of interest? If you're interested in a few different groups like demographics and stuff, um, if you're going to make conclusions about prevalence, then you need to make sure that you are, you know, if you're going to say like uh, gamers who like this type of game and are different from gamers who like that type of game and 40% of people are like this, well, you can't just do a random survey of people on Reddit. Um, you need to do a, a better population survey so that you're more representative of that. So there's definitely this, you know, when you're surveying, you have to pay attention to quality, to, um, uh, to your survey sampling methodology, because obviously you don't survey everyone. Um, you survey a sample of the population. Then you got to think about things like how do you construct the tests? Because you want to construct the tests in a way that measures quantitatively your constructs of interest um so you don't want to have like there's a whole science behind how you develop surveys so that you don't have double-barreled questions that you have things (laughs) that are really unambiguous um and so that the data can be interpreted in a quantitative way um because there are certain assumptions that you need to make about the data before you can apply a statistical or inferential test on them and so surveys you know to be quantitative they need to meet all those characteristics and then you can run your uh, history, yeah, uh, your frequency distributions and, and, and do inferential tests like t-tests or ANOVAs and stuff like that with confidence that you're measuring what you think you're measuring of interest. And you can make, uh, from a quantitative perspective, perspective, you can make valid inferential conclusions from that data. For qualitative data, the way I differentiate it is that it's something where you can't just on a quantitative level say like, well, with this degree of probability, I can say that these two groups are different in this direction or something sure. like that. Um, But you can learn a heck of a lot of interesting stuff with qualitative. And in fact, a lot of the research that I encourage teams that I work with to do starts with qualitative because it's cheap. um, Because if you want to move the needle and just get really like, it's good to start with the gross fixes, not grosses and disgusting, but grosses at the large chunky things. It's good to start there uh, because usually there's a ton of low hanging fruit that like you run a few people through, you watch them with trained moderators um and trained game designers were familiar with the game and the genre and you can fix a lot of stuff before you have to like do a more expensive quantitative study and so that like i'm sure that was way too much information for some folks but but that's the way i think about it and they're both useful they just have to you have to use them in the right context and and just a quick caveat before i yield the floor back uh, one of the problems is that some folks in and i don't want to say it's exclusive to marketing but in my experience um, they'll run a, 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 a focus group or a group with only a few people. They'll have some sort of survey asking people on a seven-point scale, and then they'll co- try to come up with a mean or you know something And it's like <laughs> we just don't have enough data, or we haven't collected in a way where you can make mean like seventy-five percent of people like because then people all of a sudden interpret that to the population at large, and there's too much error, like potential like just measuring error and, and other factors going into it that like say seventy-five percent out of five people versus seventy-five percent of the population. You know, you just can't make that statement with confidence.
1: Yeah. No, that's super interesting. So, you know, thinking about qualitative, I was actually, um, I I met with a a studio, um, I think it was like a couple days ago. And uh, they're just going on. They're like, they've got this game. It's got good retention. It's in soft launch. Probably could use UX and spine. Um, but, uh, yeah, they've got monetization issues. And so, you know, I I played through it and I I got to the point where like, I couldn't continue. And so I just bought everything they told me to, I spent, you know, 50, $75 for them. You know, I I like the guys, so that's fine. Um, it it didn't get more fun. And I was like, well, yeah, they're not repeat spending. It's not fun. But I, I, you know, I, I encouraged them. I was like, why don't you just like pick you know a couple players that have bought once and didn't buy again or, or bought multiple times and like get on the phone with them like actually ask them what they think about it like what what was their experience like what were they hoping for what were they wishing i was like they're going to tell you more than anything else that you could really like dig into right now cuz you got to figure out this problem because like at a minimum every time you spend money in the game like it's got to make the game more fun and i've got to feel like the value that I got out of it was more than what I put into it. Otherwise that's just like a, you know, a regret and something that you're probably not going to do again. Um, So qualitative is definitely interesting. You know, think about surveys again, though. Uh, I think I was just listening to uh, Patrick McGrath on the art of live ops podcast. And he was talking about how they use surveys in in Wuga. Now, if I gave a survey to every player and I was able to, connect their answers back to you know, like that user ID, would that be viable, like quantitative data that I could kind of analyze alongside the rest of their behavioral type stuff? So
0: we kind of pioneered some of that stuff. Well, I don't want to say pioneered it, but pioneered it for the games industry, where you have a mix of qual and quant. Uh, because then you can have, add, by qual, I mean, in this case, attitudinal data, yep. data, data data about attitudes. So what we did is we had developers then, we started very bootstrappy. So like I did studies on Rise of Nations, for instance, where we didn't have any like API to plug in or whatever to the game because there just wasn't time and it was still kind of nascent at that point. But what I did was I'd run these play tests for an hour or two and I'd have people fill out surveys at different points. And what I would measure is things like for real-time strategy games, um, I looked at their mini-map, how much of the map had they explored? I looked at their econ, how many of each resource had they done? I looked at their aging, how many times had they aged up? And then I tried to correlate that with data of how much fun were they having the game? Did they feel confused or lost at certain point? And, and so it wasn't as rigorous as, as it could have been. It was still kind of more on the qualitative side because it was more it was more of a case study just with more folks. Yep. But Microsoft was like starting to get ahead of the game there. And it was the, we called it the Vince tool because Voodoo Vince, which probably not a lot of people who didn't buy Xbox <laughs> at launch, remember Voodoo Vince. was an adorable character who was in a platformer game but the team had instrumented the data so that you could have things like when he failed, when he died, certain things happen. And you could trigger a survey at that time to see what people were feeling. Um, and that was a perfect example where you could graph, because the thing is, is that like in, in the shooter and other games, like dying is actually part of the game and it should be fun. What's wrong is if I die 20 times and I don't know why, and I'm confused, <laughs> I can't figure out the controls. That's annoying. But if you only know number of deaths, you have no idea. Like I'm mean, think about like uh was it N plus the like crazy platformer game. Like, you know, you just think you're supposed to die over and over and over really fast. And it resets really quickly. Uh, and it's just hilarious to play, right? And I'm dying hundreds of times. If you were just, if you didn't have an attitude of data, you'd be like, this game isn't any fun, right? That's not the case at all. And then I did my own ghetto versions of that with Dragon Age Origins. I, I had a little, I talk about it in some of my talks. I have a little, like a little score sheet. It's like, how much fun are you having right now? Are you confused or lost? Um, and I had it was just a printed out piece of paper that I had people sit beside them <laughs> and I had them use a little penny um, and just place like whatever they felt it was appropriate to place. And then I would just every 15 minutes, I'd go around the room, I'd count up the pennies on the different things and then have this mix of progression, that, like where they were in the game and like how they were feeling. And so totally valid thing to do. Um, there's other issues with trying to survey your user base uh, when they're live in terms of sampling again. But um, <laughs> yeah, totally valid approach.
1: Cool. Very interesting. stuff. So. Cool. Um, Well, before we like delve too far into the UX side of things, which I want to spend a lot of time on today, um, you mentioned, you know, you started helping a lot of these studios that were in, you know, kind of the scenario where they've soft launched a game, things really aren't going as well as they'd really hope that they were, (laughs) which is unfortunate, but you know, kind of the reality of where we are. Um, And there's a million things to do. And, you know, you've only got one to two months of runway. What, what are some things that you, you know, see people doing or that you should do or like some common themes? I'm sure this is something that everyone in their mind is, is wondering. And Obviously, if they want like a really tailored approach, they should probably come and work with you directly. But, you know, just some, you know, common themes. Like, like let's say, you know, this game that I was kind of helping with. Um, in, in many ways, they copied a lot of the economy from like, say, AFK Arena. So kind of that like mid-core uh, RPG style and then the, the gameplay itself is kind of like a tactical RPG. Um, so, you know, you've got the, the heroes, you collect them, you level them up, you know, similar to AFK with the, the heroes and such. Um, you know, what what is the right approach or is there even some level of general approach that you can take to that? Like, is there something from the UX perspective or is this a little bit more where you need to put on your social and cognitive psychology hat and think about like, what is the audience that I'm targeting? And, and, and am I getting the right audience in the game, you know? The, like,
0: I, I'd like to say this, it's it's like super scientific, but at that point it's not really. It's, um, is there a core fun to it that makes me want to continue playing? Like at this stage, like if you're asking me to solve monetization when really you've got a retention or engagement funnel issue, like, sorry. Can't help you like i'll just say like sorry like until you're until you can retain users and engage them like well I, get through the funnel and stuff i would like,
1: actually say they, they don't have an engagement they don't have retention and i actually think their core loop is really fun um yeah it, it, so so that's yeah. different so
0: right yeah. so what i'm getting at though is the so is the core mechanic and loop actually fun to do because yeah. if it's not then i also say unless you're willing to work on this there's no point in trying to optimize against it because you're just yeah. throwing your money out the window. I worked on, this isn't a knock at all on the Mafia Wars team because that game like was what got a lot of us games industry folks into social gaming at the time when like, we were just playing Mafia Wars with each other. And we worked, at Zynga, you know, we were at the scale where like, you know even a few percentage points here or there in terms of funnel B1 <laughs> retention and stuff like had huge impact on your numbers. And so we worked on projects where we were trying to optimize the 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 top of funnel, the Fatui, right? and we. there were a bunch of hypotheses and we sort of mocked some up and stuff like that. And what we found is it didn't, we could improve the funnel a whole bunch, but still D1 retention was the same because as it turned out, the type of fun was like like only 37% of people were ever going to find it fun enough to to stick with. Like it didn't matter that we could get more people through. Um, It's just that that small core group was going to be the group. that. And and mid-core games see this a lot, right? Like you, I'm a mid-core person. I install lots of games that look fun. know if i stick around for day one i'm probably going to stick around for day seven even like it just that the way that curve works um like low d1 but then you know the d1 to d7 like flattens out nicely Um, and so but so you've got to start there like is it is the core game fun do we believe in it and and if we can't come to an agreement on that then i i can't really work with you if we can see that the game's fun but the problem is that people can't find the fun then that's a certain set of issues, right? So then that's like, how do we think about, I call it board and pieces. Um, so how do we make it so that by playing the game and setting them up for success early on to figure, feel that feel that sense that I'm smart, I figured it out. There's some differentiation for maybe other titles that are, I'm playing and already invested in that make me interested. Um, and, 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 and you do that by board and pieces, like getting them into the right situation, the right battles with the right equipment, if it's a kind of a battler type of game. Um, so that I can just mash around and 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 trip through the core experience and see, oh yeah, this is gonna be fun. And there's a progression involved that like I'm excited about. Um, and so that's where we want to get to. And sometimes we just fail because of bad core UX. Like people can't figure out how to play. Whoever figures out how to play the game sticks around because they love it, but like you've just made it impenetrable because you're violating various usability and UX you know, rules. Um, so there's that issue. And then there's the other issue of where it's fun, but it doesn't retain. And then you got to think of a whole different set of motivations. Like, why would people be interested? How do you how do you make them more interested uh, in returning later that day or certainly the next day for sure? And, and that is, you know, you solve that differently. Like there's a different sort of the meta is really where you, you start to solve that. And meta can be like, we think about like, you know, meta economy and all that, but meta can also be story narrative, other types of progression that are there as long as they're clear to the player and they're motivational. Like I want to know what happens next. I want to invest time to progress down this track. Uh, That's the other area where you can, but, but unfortunately when you're, when they're burning and on fire at the end, it's usually just like, help us solve day one to two to three retention. Like, you know, we can't <laughs> even think about D seven right now. Right. We need to be able to, yeah. to have a D one that's 40% or whatever, or else like we're not going to fund it anymore. And this is, This was the core of my old, I still do some of this, but this was the UX before UA, because I couldn't understand, so UX before user acquisition. I talked to a bunch of my clients who were like on really small teams, like they didn't have big budgets. And I'm like, how do you, you know, how do you afford 5K or maybe 10K a month with me when you could hire, you know, a couple artists or another designer or whatever for that money. And they they laid it out for me. They're like, look, you know, for a games our size, like our biggest budget is actually user acquisition. And we know, we believe that you can help us move the needle a little bit or the, here or there by, by helping us figure out what levers to pull. And, and that just makes our UA spend so much more effective. Like, that, it, it's like a 10X ROI. So they spend $5,000 on me, they get a $50,000 savings through efficiency on user acquisition. So, no it, it didn't, it felt cool that I was like helping to save the money and optimize, but like, it's not ultimately <laughs> satisfying for me. Like, I want to make the games more fun. Yeah. <laughs> but like, cold hard cash, it totally
1: made sense to them. So, you know, thinking about that idea of, of where it's fun, I'm actually going to step out of games for a second here um, <clears throat> and, and talk a little bit about Instagram. So I don't know, Jason, did you ever see like the, uh, the app that would eventually get scrapped and become Instagram? Um, but it was like this janky looking social media thing, but somewhere deep inside it, they had this photo sharing feature where you could comment on it that was like baked in there. And pretty much their retention was terrible. Like people didn't stick around, except for the people that found that photo sharing feature. The ones that did used it a lot and they engaged with it a lot. And so ultimately what they did is they, you know, dug through their data and, you know, they looked at like player usage by feature and like retention over time. And, you know, down here, everything is really bad, but eventually that feature rises up and then flatlines at the top of, like, players that find and use this feature stick around and do that. You know, is that something that can and should also be done in a game Uh, when you're trying to understand, like, why are these players sticking around when all of these ones are leaving? You know, what are they doing differently? Is it just that my game is only fun for them? Or is there something that they're finding and how's the best way to find that thing versus what these people are finding such that I can get more of them finding that and sticking around longer.
0: Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. When we do like the play testing for fun ratings, like, you know, how much are people enjoying the game? Uh, On the fun rating itself, you know, we want everyone to say it's very fun, not somewhat fun and certainly not not fun. But in any other type of tuning measure um, or measure related to like some sort of feature adoption, um like chat or or things like challenge and progression what we wanted was the about right the middle like so for instance how how challenging was it to um uh to save yourself if you're being shot from off screen it was too easy about right or too hard too difficult it's too easy and too difficult are actually not what you want what you want is mostly people feel like the game is tuned to their abilities where they are Um, and so that's where a lot of the sort of the tuning comes in for that. And that's, that's, that's tangentially related, but not perfectly related to what you, what you're talking about. But the idea for games is we want to measure for optimizing the, the, we want to make sure by default, most people are going to get that sweet progression experience. Now, when it comes to specifically, like, are there things, uh, at which, like, if they don't hit it in the right frame of mind and the outcome, isn't a certain way they're going to leave. And so you think about games like combat games, or maybe you're fighting an AI first, or maybe they throw you right into a one v one match. Like if you lose and get your ass kicked and they insult you, you're probably going to churn, right? Um, and, and similarly, like if this game like really feature like people are talking about this really cool part of the game, and you can't experience it for some reason because you're not good enough or you didn't figure it out, then you're probably going to leave leave the game. Um, in Frontierville, like a huge mega success at, at Zynga, we actually were able to like to relate uh, like super highly the um, the putting down the foundation of your farmhouse, your your homestead, your actual house where you're gonna like, the story suggested you're gonna build out your homestead. You might find a wife and start a family. People who went through the tutorial and started to do some basic actions on the thing and managed to get as far as putting that foundation on were so much likely to return to the next session. Cause I was an appointment mechanic as well, right? You flunk it down, it's like, hey, there's eight hours, it'll be done. And and we found there was definitely convincing quantitative evidence to show that like, do you want retention for the folks who did that versus did not do that? Like there was a massive difference. And so so then it becomes how do we get them to that moment? And how do we get that? But it's not just how do we get them there, but how we get them in a way that's enjoyable through the progression. Cause like I said on the mafia war stuff, we found a way to just like get people from A to B, <laughs> but um, it didn't necessarily improve retention because like, yeah, we made it easy, but do we make it fun? Yeah. Maybe not. That makes
1: sense. That's really great. Uh, Hopefully that is helpful to some people as well. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about UX a bit. So what is UX?
0: From our perspective, like we say UX is everything. And we say it somewhat facetiously, but we say it because we actually believe it. Like we've got artists, designers, programmers, like it's the whole gamut of folks who we work with um, and integrate deeply with on the dev team. And the idea is is that for every game you've got... um, like a creative vision, you've got a business vision or business story or business case. Uh, and then you've got where the rubber hits the road, like right? the player experience and how do they experience it? Do they experience it in a way where they're enjoying it? It meets their expectations or exceeds them. Um, and from a business perspective, you know, are they retaining and are they paying or are they making it an environment where you can support payers even if everyone doesn't pay? Um, and, and so... What happens with UX is you can think about UX like in a more traditional model. It's like, okay, well, we put together screens and wireframes to make it easy for people to figure out how to buy things or how to get into the next battle. And certainly that's a big chunk of it. Uh, But there's also the chunk of um, what happens when like the people designing the game are way too sophisticated at the game and um, they design an interface that like has all the options exposed to the player. But as a new player, you're just like, I don't know what's going on. I'm sitting in the cockpit of a 747 and I've never flown a single prop. Um, And so what you're doing, a lot of what you're doing is based on your experience working on games, building games, is you're asking people to really set priorities. It's like, okay, from a business perspective, what do we need them to be clicking on and engaging with every session, every two sessions, every week, so that we can sustain a healthy game that will pay for itself. From a creative vision, what are the kinds of experiences we want people to to have in the moment and anticipate and tell their friends about, right? And and so what happens is there's conflict, you know, not only between business and creative sometimes, but also between within business, like what kind of model do we want to use, and also within creative, what kind of game are we building for an experience perspective. And what we do is we first try to help them build what they're trying to build, and they quickly realize like, and then we help them realize like, actually, you got a lot of things at odds here, and there's a lot of disconnects, and you haven't really had a chance to think about it because you've just been working away. And so we help them like. Understand what those disconnects are. Understand what the true reality is when they've been there aligned. And we have to ask hard questions. Like you say, this is number one. You say that's number one, but this experience isn't going to support both of those <laughs> equally. You need to prioritize. And that's what yeah. we do a lot of: is we help people. We have people. Um, we help people prioritize things so we can make a great experience of the of the entire design. Mm. And we help them as well, like in terms of thinking about um, from the player journey perspective, which is. Um, like with live games, they obviously get more and more complex and cluttered as you add, you jam in new features and add elder game, stuff like that. And it's kind of like the chessboard, like, you know, when you're starting out as a new player, you can kind of look at the pieces and play one board at a time and you know that you get a turn, you can move a piece. And then you have the grandmasters, you can walk into a room with 30 different boards and 30 different people and play them all, like, you know, and win every <laughs> single game. And people who are passionate about the game will eventually get to that point, but like it takes them a while sometimes. And so how do we make sure that we're always um, thinking about that? How do we get them into it in a way that they feel um, comfortable, that they feel motivated to progress, um, and they have some aspirations for how this game could really unfold over the next you know, month, two months, year. Yeah. Um, and and that's, so, so, so some of that is through screens and HUD and all that sort of stuff, but a lot of it's through board and pieces, content progression, um, and understanding how pa- players perceive things um, and what
1: they enjoy. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, that sounds important, but like, how have you seen UX go wrong in a game? Like, do you have any examples of, you know, what it caused, you know, maybe unintentionally or uh, it was broken and you were able to fix it? Like, you know, yeah. how, have you, how have you seen it gone wrong?
0: So first things first, like as a professional, like I never like to tear other people's stuff down, uh, but I'm always happy to talk about failings that I've had. Uh, so let's just dive right in. Uh, and I've talked about some of these case studies before as well. Um, but one of the best ones uh, and, and that sort of clearest example to talk about that's my own, I've talked about some other games too, but um, uh, on Frontierville that we're, uh, I was mentioning before, um, this is a game that was super performant uh, when we launched. Uh, but it was only so performant because we weren't really a live ops team. We were from traditional game development more so. And so we certainly didn't get the sweet spot when it came to like, we, we grew it to, I think, like 6 million DAU. And we we're doing pretty well in terms of of monetization. But it was clearly a title that had not been optimized for the Zynga way of uh, of monetizing and feature cadence and all that sort of stuff. And so that's when San Francisco came in and really brought their their product management experience uh, to bear on it. And it was great because then, you know, you saw the point of inflection. This is awesome, we're making tons of money, people are sticking around and playing it. But about six months in or so, uh, we had a code read based on D1 retention and funnel. We didn't understand like why, like what what happened? This game has been like, like super predictable, <laughs> like D1 retention is always the same. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we were, we were thinking about it and we were looking at it. And then uh, a few of us decided to replay as a new player, the experience because we are just like, what's going on? Yeah. What we found was that like we'd broken the progression quest system uh, unintentionally. Um, so we wanted, obviously as a, as a uh, free to play game with monetization, we wanted people to go to the, we wanted to teach people early on. You want to go to the market, you want to buy things, obviously some things you can buy with in-game currency and some things require premium. Um, And so we wanted to get them into that loop quickly through the tutorial, obviously. And uh, there was one task that was like, you know, you're building a homestead, so you got to put down fences. So go to the market, buy a fence post, plunk it down, right? Simple core mechanic. You're going to be doing that forever and ever. Well, what we didn't realize is that as the game had been developed more and more for elder players, the store page had to change. And so when we launched the game, the, the fence post was on the first page, Of the storefront. And then a few months later, it was on the first page still, but it was like a little lower down because we needed to have a nice row of premium currency items on there. (laughs) And at the six month part point, you had to scroll four pages to even find the darn thing. (laughs) Um, And so we realized, like, you know, we realized, oh, like, and that's a perfect example of like where quant and qual like totally meet up because we knew that that was, we knew right around there was the point at which people like we were definitely getting a big dip in the funnel. Um mm. and so then we had to make up a UX solution for that which is um you know how do we curate the new player experience such that they don't encounter that and that the store unlocks fully at some other point because like in some some ways you want to like you always want to provide a pe- opportunities for people to spend because some people just get into the game they know they like it like why not take their money if they want to give it to you <laughs> like absolutely yep. you have to but yep. you can't have it potentially gate their progression that early on even if it was unintentional so that was kind of the takeaway there. So we implemented the tech and, you know, that solved the problem.
1: So. That's really cool. Um, Kind of on the flip side, which, you know, maybe you kind of answered this already, but uh, you know, how have you seen, you know, a UX improvement solve something or increase a metric or improve something, you know, do you have any examples of that? Yeah. I mean,
0: obviously, you know, Repairing a metric was one way, you know, just the example that I just used, right? We could certainly repair the metric. Um, there was definitely, there was definitely some situations where, uh, like, when, well, going back in history first, let's let let's see if I can jog some memories. But first, one of the, on Crimson Skies, for instance, like this was a game that was supposed to be, you know, Indiana Jones, but in the skies with like cool uh, alternative history planes and things like that. And it was being developed by an awesome team at FASA. Um, and they were more of like combat flight sim backgrounds and things like that. And their 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 games from FASA were much more sim. And they really wanted to appeal to a more action adventure crowd because the market was bigger. And that was the way they were going to market the game. And to their credit, the team was like, okay, well, we're going to do all this play testing with action adventure gamers, not with combat flight simmers. We've, we've put a stake in the sand. We're going to appeal to those folks. Um, and therefore, you know, we're going to test against those folks. Um, and so... Uh, so we run these play tests and people were giving horrible reviews of the combat and the flight. They're getting killed throughout screen. They didn't know how they're constantly crashing the planes. It just was not fun. We'd run usability sessions and people would get motion sick, um, and have to cancel the studies. Um, and the team, like the team didn't see it because obviously they built the game. They played hundreds of hours of the game and they, uh, they loved the game because it was like, it was a dream to play the game that they were making. and it was hard to convince the team at the time. Like playtesting was kind of in its infancy then. Um, they'd all they'd all developed successful games before, right? And a critically acclaimed games. So like, who are you to tell us this isn't fun? Um, and and we were trying to explain to them that the model of combat meant that people like people when they see something coming at them, they like jerk like an they jerk the stick, they peg the stick, right? Like ah, get me out of here! And if I'm trying to aim, it's a slightly different movement with my thumbstick. Um, and uh, that was one issue. And the other issue was uh, getting shot from off screen. Um, you'd die before you even notice you were getting shot. <laughs> and so this was an area this was an area where like we looked at competitors. So for the getting shot off screen, we looked at competitors, and at that time, Halo was not a competitor, but obviously super popular. And they'd implemented uh, a shield mechanic so that you were you could take hits for a while before they became lethal, so you'd have a chance to turn around and adjust. Mm-hmm. So we added some of that into the game. Um, and then to serve, to, to get the flight model saved, it's one of my favorite moments of serendipity. Uh, we actually, in these play test sessions, everyone will wear headsets while they're playing because you don't want everyone distracting each other if they're at different points of the game hearing different things. So you hear silence as a, as an observer there. And so the team came in to watch. And all you hear heard was a clack, 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 the slamming of the stick as they pegged the stick and cursing that like, you know, they screwed up again. And that's when the team understood, oh, right, these are action-adventure players who are not Sydney players They don't just do these fine movements and try to find a really cool line of attack and approach and all that. They're just like, I'm in there with planes and I want to shoot them with my big gun. <laughs> um, and it was a real moment of sort of awareness and awakening that like, oh, yeah, to appeal to these types of folks, we need to adjust our flight model um, and our controls mechanics. And we did that through the usability lab where we actually iterated on different flight configurations, mm. um, and found a good default one for most people to to use, um, that people could adjust obviously, but we found a good default that most people felt comfortable with.
1: That's really cool. Appreciate you sharing that story. Um, cool. So for people that are listening, um, obviously player experience is probably an important thing. Uh, I I obviously believe it's, you know, really important with user-wise building our, you know, player experience management platform. Um, But, uh, yeah, so for folks that are thinking about player experience, like, what is a good way to, like, take my player experience to the next level? Like, you know, obviously even world-class games like Candy Crush or Clash of Clans, probably could you know further improve their player experience to say nothing of the games that are still in soft launch and stuff. So like what is a good approach to say, okay, here's where I am right now. How can I make the player experience better?
0: It's tough because a lot of it depends on budget um and size of like opportunity and risk you're willing to take on. Uh so if you're trying to you know build a game that you know is going to take twenty to fifty million dollars to develop and then you're gonna spend you know, maybe 10x that on user acquisition because this is just a huge title that you're expecting to be a billion dollar franchise. Uh, you need to do a lot of UX. You need to do it all the time, uh, like right from the very beginning. You need to use it in terms of like understanding competitors. Obviously, your people are breaking it down for feature analysis. They're breaking it down for things that they that they consider to be related to retention versus social versus engagement funnel. All those sorts of things. They're super important. But you also need to understand the motivations and experiences that players want for these types of games. And you need to use that as a lens to approach how you develop the features for your specific game, um, and that that's a heavy like competitor research, but also internally with the team, what are their beliefs in terms of what they want the players to experience and why they think this game should be fun. So that's a lot of heavy lifting at the at the beginning analysis, potentially qualitative and quantitative analysis, so not just metrics. Like, you identify the competitors through sales growth, whatever you want to do. But understanding the whys behind it, that's that's where you, you probably have some intuitions, but you might also want to do some user testing there and survey people, talk to people, watch them play the games and things like that. Um, and then you want to have these like trained UXers who understand strategy um, to help you set yourself up for success in building that experience. Uh, you want to help to have them in terms of strategy too, it's the, the road mapping. Um, so this is where the risk mitigation part comes in. Um, Oftentimes we talk about games being like, you know, you want to be like 80%, like where the, the competition is and maybe have like 20% innovation. Um, and you can think about it as innovation or the right IP or or what have you, but like oftentimes it's 80%, 20%, at least for a traditional game developer that's looking for some interesting new gameplay, as opposed to just ripping the competition and putting a new skin on it. Like, um, And so the idea there is if you have things that are risky, then you'll want to prototype, you know, as UXers, you you identify them as risky from an actual player experience perspective. Am I going to use a new combat model? Am I going to um, make a, a genre that t- traditionally is turn-based into a real-time uh, type of situation? And you want to make sure that the dev team is prototyping that stuff earlier and you're getting feedback on it early because the other stuff, the other 80%, should be mostly known, um, and you should be able to conservatively be able to hit those bars, you know, without all the experimentation. So it's it's identifying things to front-load in terms of testing. Um, and, and then it's a lot about risk mitigation as you move along because you do want to try new things. Um, and if you can get a a developer that's really into iterative development, you can let them go off and experiment for a bit, knowing that at the end, you'll be able to test it, um, and rule it in or rule it out. And so there's been a lot of games that I've worked on where we've been able to experiment more because we had confidence in knowing that we would quickly be able to either rule it out or keep it and keep investing in it. So that's the big budget titles, right. That, that have lots of money and lots of risk involved for the smaller ones. It's tough because, you know, basically, you know, you use your intuition to see what's working, what's not within the genre that you're, you're building against. And you try to use the conventions that are already working. Cause the last thing you need is someone to stumble on something that should be super obvious, like how the, the left stick should work in a first person shooter game or whatever. So a lot of it is, is, you know, studying the competition and doing your best intuition a lot of it's just you know getting what you can to play test um, uh, to play test amongst people that you trust, like you can't necessarily afford to play pay a lot of folks to to play test it. Um, and then um, and often folks, smaller indie developers like have these communities that they do you know hand thing and mm-hmm. and and they hand builds to each other give feedback. And I think those indie gamers as well, like they have a fan base that's much more trusting of them because they like the indie game style and they're more forgiving sometimes in terms of UX because they trust these developers. They're attached to them. They feel socially close to them because they're often like very active in their community and things like that. Like you can actually talk to these people. They're like real people and you can communicate with them. Um, so uh so they don't, they they still to the best of their ability can't, you know, ideally are doing some blind user testing where they're hiring in someone else or having someone else who's not invested in the game and it's not an expert at game, helping them do some at least play testing, like watching a few people play without talking to them, figuring out where they get stuck just so they can smooth over that initial experience. Um, but if they don't have the resources, then what are you supposed to do? Like that's that's the biggest problem as we've grown as well is like we don't, we used to be able to support smaller budget teams and now like our businesses is much more with the bigger players and we're trying as a company strategically like we miss that <laughs> um and and so you know getting and, and there has been a slight to, uh, there has been some democratization at least in terms of platforms like steam allows more integration of tools so you can measure some of that stuff uh, playtest cloud and other competitors allow people to like send out mobile builds easily to folks and collect both uh survey and uh gameplay data and stuff like that and so we encourage folks to, to do that sort of thing Um, And really, it's just, you know, obviously, you would love to have the money and time and or the friends that are just great UXers who can give you the feedback. Uh, But even just the perspective taking like stepping back, um, letting someone else take control of the feedback and and collecting that feedback and giving it to you. Doing that is so much more than some people do already, and that's already gonna help you out a bunch. Like it's gonna set you on the right track. And then as you get bigger games and more experience, sorry, and bigger budget games, maybe if you <laughs> want to do that kind of thing, then you can roll some of this other stuff on. It really is like as glorious as it sounds sometimes, it really is risk mitigation, like at its yeah. you know, every dollar you spend is a you know has the ROI in terms of risk mitigation. Um, yep. that's just the way it is.
1: That totally makes sense. So, you know, I I also think about uh, player experience a little bit. I I don't know if you've ever played any of, like, the Larian games, like Divinity 2 or, you know, anything like that. Um, They're super interesting. I I just did a playthrough with a few of my buddies uh, back in college, um, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, But, like, the decisions that you make, you can't really stop yourself from progressing through the game, but, like, you can, like, kill an end. See PC and like, it'll have like rippling effects for the whole rest of the game. Uh, super interesting, but there's a lot of different aspects of the game. And what I noticed when we were playing is that, you know, I had certain things that I liked doing, namely like robbing all the merchants and getting as rich as possible. Uh, a couple of my other friends. Super into the story. They wanted to like follow along all the quests and just like deeply understand it. And then, you know, we had one guy. he just wanted to like blow everything up and get super powerful. Um, so it was an interesting playthrough together. Um, but I feel like we have that in every game, right? You've got, you know, some people like collecting, some people like competing, some people like you know, doing x, y, z. How do you think about UX and player experience in terms of like, obviously, if I can give, you know, me more opportunities to rob the merchants and get really rich, I'm probably going to be more engaged with the game. And if you give me like, oh, maybe if you spend a little bit, then you can do like more of what you want to do. I'm probably going to be more willing to spend, you know, same thing with that person that wants to compete. Like, how do we think about and how should you approach, you know, designing the game for each of your different kind of segments in your audience to really personalize and tailor the game to each player?
0: Yeah. And that. That really, you know, that's a a market research end of things too, because you need to understand clearly you can't appeal to everyone or else you'll end up like appealing to no one. Right. That's (laughs) the the game will be so bland and generic or just so complex and unwieldy. It'll be like, wait, it'll be so expensive to create. And then what of course you'll find is that like, you know, you've, uh, you've hit the nail on some of the segments and you've not on the others. And so like you wasted a whole bunch of money developing a bunch of content that no one's going to see or enjoy or whatever. So like, Obviously, focusing early is is super important. What we do and what we've started to do is the folks at, at Quantic Foundry they've um, they've come up with a, a motivational framework based on like thousands and thousands of surveys of folks. Uh, super interesting stuff. And we've we, what we've done is we've taken that and we've taken uh, some basic social and cognitive psychology and some models from there, and we've we've come up with our own um, experience motivation framework that we use to help teams assess this. Uh, because the idea is, is that we, we need to understand clearly what you're trying to, you know, what experiences you're trying to create based on the motivations of people who are likely to enjoy this type of game. And then how do you make sure you have the right mix of those things? And you're supporting the things that are, that are, that people like, uh, and that you're reducing the chance of like the track, like, like certain things like competition or, um, skill and coordination, super motivating to some folks because, The experience, like, is like that tension and that, like, who can be on top or whatever. But for other folks, that's like super low. And in fact, if there's too much of it or if it's required, they're gonna they're gonna churn out. They're not. That's not gonna be. Or they won't even play it, right? Um, And so what you've got to do is you've got to say, okay, well, you know, this is the segment in the market that we want to fill. These are the types of games that people play. These are the types of motivations um, and experiences that seem to serve uh, the top in the genre as well. And then you can have hypotheses, right? You can say, "Well, we'll just take what's known, and we'll just like, we'll just we'll do an uh, experience motivation breakdown on those games, and we'll we'll category we will come up with the same two or three or four categories of gamer that we're trying to appeal to, knowing that each gamer isn't like it's more complex than that. But like, this is the what we're going to focus on. You can focus on a universe of things, and experiences. We're going to focus on these things. Yeah. Um, but you can also do like a gap analysis too, and say, actually, you know, with this like, you know, we're going to bring Family Guy to this. And so, you know, maybe it's a card battler. And so maybe we're going to reduce uh, some of the, um, uh, you know, the grindy meta purpose for a progression loop that rewards people who are fans of the genre. They can unlock cooler or harder to get cards and stuff like that. So I'm going to dial back the strategy element and dial up the uh, the story, narrative, progression, completion uh, that matches the folks. And so, you know, there, there's ways to like I said, both just, you know, I just, that space is huge and we want to have <laughs> an interest in it because we want some of that money. Um, but there's also the, 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 specific, like there's gaps here and let's, or you're looking at an underperforming game in a genre or an, a, a maybe a new genre that you want to create. Yeah. And you, you, you just want to make sure, you know, that there's a player like there are people out there that want those motivations and you need to design and test against those. So it's super valuable to like, to be considering those things. And it's, it's integral to our process. If there's, if there's one thing that we're most proud of um, is is the um, experience motivation framework that we use with our clients, and uh, they get a lot of value out of it. It ain't it ain't easy, short, or cheap to run, uh, so it's harder to run that. Like we're going to try to through white papers and other things like make it more accessible, uh, but it's it, it's it's uh, people get a lot of return on the investment of like thinking carefully about that stuff.
1: That's fantastic. That's great. Well, I I know we're about out of time here, but uh, I always like to ask uh, one unofficial question because we are on the Mastering Retention podcast. And that is obviously, you know, what's one tip or trick you found over the years to help boost retention?
0: I really, you know, at the beginning when I started to work on free to play games and that was really at Zynga on the Facebook games, one of the problems with games that I found at least like now it's more accepted, but at the beginning was um, how do you, like there's no graceful session end for a lot of these games, right? It's you run out of energy, or you do <laughs> your 17th move, and you're only allowed to do 17 moves before either you have to pay or you have to come back at some point. And so the retention, you know, there there's parts of the retention which are like you can solve through like appointment mechanics and say like, hey, that cabin that we talked about for Frontierville is going to be done in eight hours, and you got to come back in eight hours. But it's really so so that's fine um, as a retention thing. And if you certainly if you don't have that eight hour timer you're probably not going to get any retention. So, you know, you're going to get some retention by adding that timer appointment mechanic, but it's like, how do you get people to buy in and feel invested in that? Well, the reason why people bought in and felt invested in that is because we started out a storyline and you're going to start to meet people. And we set up like not just a short-term loop of like, you know, here's the short arc. You're you're going to see progress here. You're going to attract new people. You're going to unlock new tasks and fun things to do. And, but then there's this longer term, like there's this promise of romance maybe or having a family and a legacy and stuff like that that you can see playing out throughout the arcs. So there's the, so for, for improving retention, the, you know, having people click yes, turn on notifications or showing them a clock when they should come back. Absolutely that lifts retention. But when you can really buy uh Build that into like what experiences they want. What's motivating them to continue? That's where you're going to get the real lift on retention. And I think that that's where the sort of the craft of the game designer with the sciencey—I mean, game designers can be sciencey—but with the sort of the 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 best practices and playbooks of the of the producer product management folks. That's when, when you can meld those two together on a really fundamental level. I think that's when you're really going to see um, the lift in
1: retention. That's fantastic. Well, Jason, I feel like I've learned a ton today. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, this has been a lot of fun for me. Um, yeah, if if folks do want to reach out with any questions or if they are you know, interested in learning more about how they might be able to work with UX is fine, how should they contact you?
0: Uh, right now, website is the sort of best way to do it. It's uh, www.uxisfine, all one word, .com. Um, you can do a search for you. That's fine. And we'll come up. We have like Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter accounts as well. We're trying to get better about them. Uh, we've been super busy and we haven't prioritized it, but if you can find us that way too, also, my name's Jason Sklar, S-C-H-K-L-A-R. It'll probably appear on the podcast cover. Um, and you can just do a quick search for me or reach out uh, via email or uh, my LinkedIn account. Happy to
1: chat. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Take care. Great stock game.